Hello, my name is Holly Lewis. Buddies! Ba 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 buddies! Oh, Jesus. I, I am Jean Lewis. <laughs> and that is Law Sinkini. Oh, it's going to be a good one today, I can tell. I can tell it's going to be a great one today. Yes. So, <laughs> all of if, the technical... Tech issues aside, this is, yes, going to be a great episode. Uh, if that's any indication to you all, we have, of course, watched the political thriller <laughs> Minions. It's an animated family film by Illumination, with all of that all that, that entails. Uh, but before we get into that, we'll talk about what we're seeing within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off? Well, in a few weeks, uh, we are all going to have a piss take to share, because we are going to see a play... Uh, together, a True. Shakespeare play, a production of As You Like It, and uh, serendipitously, a pro shot of that play has popped up in my movie marathons, <laughs> and How about so that? I've watched that. So, um, the Globe Theatre has a pro shot out there of As You Like It. Uh, it's a romantic comedy directed by Thea Sharrock. It is, of course, based on the William Shakespeare play, the production of which was held at the Globe Theatre. And is set in the aftermath of a palace coup, where the, uh, the former duke of the place, um, played by Philip Bird, is hanging out in the woods. He's been deposed, and all of his loyalists are out there with him. His daughter, Rosalind, played by Naomi Frederick, is allowed to stay with her uncle, the new duke. But she soon, too, is exiled and goes to the woods. But instead of reuniting with her father, she pretends to be a man to mess with her crush, Orlando, played by Jake Lasky, for no apparent reason. Mm. Um... This is a lot of fun, and I've got to say, this is a, a Shakespeare play that's been growing on me. It wasn't my favourite, but I've warmed up more and more every time I've seen it. This is the third time I've seen a version of it. Um, and uh, i got to say, Shakespeare really liked drag, huh? Yeah? Oh, yeah. Like, he was a big, big fan of that. He used that plot device a lot, even when there was really no good justification for it, like here. I know. But um, this is another fairly traditional Adaptation, I mentioned when I talked about the Globe Theatre's Romeo and Juliet pro shot that they do, uh, or at least the era that I'm watching from, do fairly traditional sorts of uh, uh, productions. Well, it's the Globe, but this so. land, Yeah, this lands a lot more than the Romeo and Juliet one did. It, it does take a while to warm up, the performances included, but it's funny. It's got great banter. I th- think that The Fool tries really too hard. There's a lot of, like mugging for the audience mm. and making silly noises and things. Well, you've got to it's, make the it, full role natural. Yeah, it, it's almost like they, they worry that the audience isn't going to understand that it's meant to be mm. funny. Mm. Um, but uh, it's got good performances as well, especially by uh, Tim McMullen as Jacques. Um, and it, in, it does inherit some problems that are baked into the text. There are some scenes that just go on too long. I mean, it's a two-and-a-half-hour play, and my editor's brain sees some cuts <laughs> to be made. Because um, it does just... There, there are scenes that continue long after the point that they should. Dialogue that continues when it could be made much quicker. And there's part of me that's like, Bill, come on, mate. you gotta got to cut it down. It's not your strongest um, work, Billy, my dude. The ending is also a complete deus ex machina. I mean, people sort of recite conveniences that happened off screen, and it's it's kind of a cop-out. And I, as I mentioned in the plot summary, I really don't understand the logic behind the whole scheme. I don't understand why Rosalind is doing this. Um, but it's entertaining to watch, and it's good fun. And like I said, it's a play that I'm really warming up to the more I see it. I next saw The Oxford Murders. Mm. It is a mystery film directed by Alec. 
directed by Alex Della Iglesia, and it's based on the book of the same name by Guillermo Martinez. It follows a university student, Martin, played by Elijah Wood. He's an American student who's studying abroad at Oxford, and he idolizes this famous professor of logic at the university named Arthur Seldom. He's played by John Hurt. Mm. And Seldom is friends with Martin's landlady. But uh, one morning when, uh, you know, Martin comes across Seldom on his, his way out the front driveway to visit the landlady, they find her murdered in her sitting room. And it soon becomes apparent that there is, there is a serial killer that is challenging Seldom through code, uh, your logic, patterns, things like that. And so they've got to team up to figure it out. This is very entertaining, but not in the intended manner. Oh, um, no. <laughs> it's, it's a garbled mess. The, the story's mostly fine, but the execution, oh boy. Uh, the mystery's kind of intriguing. It's, it's a bit of a mix of Dan Brown and Agatha Christie, but there are just so many red herrings that they feel like dropped subplots at a certain point. Uh, and the ultimate destination it arrives at just feels vaguely inappropriate. Like, when when the reveal finally came of, of what was all going on, I was kind of like, okay, I'm not sure how I feel about that. Um, it does a very poor job of selling the obsession and the jealousy that is running through all of the character relationships. It, it's a little overwrought and um, underpitched, let's say. Uh, but uh, the love interest, Lorna, played by Leonor Watling, doesn't work at all either. Um, and the dialogue, my God, it, it's like a chatbot wrote it. It's, <laughs> oh, God. It's terrible. It's like, at a certain point, it's not. It's like you're not even watching humans. You're, you're watching, like, you're watching a robot read Google-translated stuff, and that may not be too far from the truth. I mean, I get the feeling that the, like, the production was a, um, heavily, like, it's a Spanish book um, from a Spanish author, a Spanish director, and I, I get the impression that there was a lot of translating going back and yeah. forth in the development of this, and I wonder if that is to blame. Um, the staging is kind of unintentionally funny at times, like uh, Elijah Wood has a fight with his, his love interest, and she gets up and storms out of the library that they're in, and he gets up and runs out after her, but he he runs into this guy holding a ton of books along the way and knocks him over. But it's this big, wide overhead shot where you see that there's just so much room on either side of this guy, and Elijah Wood specifically goes out of his way (laughs) to barrel through him. Like, it's so easily avoidable. But it's it's little things like that. It has one of the worst ADR jobs I've ever seen on on Bernd Gorman as a supporting character. And uh, Wood really can't survive the poor dialogue he's been given. Hurt does, but he's also John Hurt, and his character is much more successfully written than Elijah Wood's is. Um, it's great fun, though. <laughs> it's very entertaining. It's and at watch. the end of the day, he was an Oxford man. Um, I next saw a movie called Salvage. It is a horror thriller directed by Lawrence Goh, and it follows a single mother named Beth. Uh, played by Neve McIntosh. She is estranged from her teenage daughter, Jodie, played by Lindsay Cocker. Uh, and when her ex-husband drops Jodie off for Christmas, basically, uh, 
Jodie comes into the house to find her mother having sex with a man named Kieran, played by Sean Dooley, who is a one-night stand. And so she sort of storms across the cul-de-sac they live in, neighbour style, in a bit of a street domestic, to take refuge with her friend across the way. But at just that point, Special Forces team storms the street and locks it down because there's some ambiguous violent threat. And so everyone's stuck in their houses. Jodie's stuck across the street and Beth is stuck awkwardly with her one night stand Kieran in her own house trying to figure out how to get to her daughter and what's going on um is the dangerous it, event the domestic because on, no. on it, w- it would be a spoiler for me to say what on the dangerous Ramsey event Street, was, it would be it's an interesting little movie that's that's better the smaller it remains I mean the more it actually goes outside of this house the less it is in control of itself it's far more successful as a chamber piece between these two characters, between the characters of Beth and Kieran. Um, there's just some awkwardness, but there's also this evolving tension as they, neither of them want to be stuck with the other, but also there's this sort of like warning after thing where they're kind of like, oh, we're just not the kind of people that would have got along without the use of you know alcohol as a social lubricant. Mm. Like, that kind of thing. Oh, now, actually, we're really conflicting in every other way that matters, and we're also stuck in this high-pressure situation. Um, But it's all of this post-9-11 stuff Mm. tied into it as well. These ties with loss of community, the fracturing of of families. It's not brilliantly mapped out, but it does have a a sort of basic power to it. It gets too big, though, and it tries too much, and ultimately it gets lost in unconvincing spectacle before taking a turn that I wish that it hadn't. Um, the, like I said, it should have stayed in the house a lot more than it does. The more it tries to explain what's going on, the more I lose interest. It has a muddled ending that can't really figure out a point. It does stick the knife in pretty effectively at times. It has its moments, and there are decent performances by McIntosh and Dooley. Um, the geography of the location is a little fuzzy, though. They seem to be trying to disguise it because uh, apparently I looked it up afterwards. It was that cul-de-sac was previously used as the setting for a um, the filming location for a British soap opera that mm. ran for like twenty years and had, had gone off the air like five years before this movie. So they, I think they are deliberately trying to obscure it. Um, but if you would like to watch it, it is available for streaming on something called Filmsy. <sighs> Go with God, Filmsy. You've picked a fantastic time to enter the streaming market. <laughs> we wish you the very best. Honestly, good on you. Good Godspeed. Because honestly, there aren't enough of them. <laughs> I next watched Despicable Me, or as the French call it, Despicable Moi. <laughs> it is an animated children's comedy. <laughs> that one got you, did huh? yeah. <laughs> It's the stupidest thing. Because I didn't expect it. It was almost the coming. It was almost the pulp fiction of thing of hey, I watched that Despicable Me movie. I watched it on the plane ride to France. What do they call it in France? Despicable, Despicable Moi. It's an animated children's comedy directed by Pierre Coffin and Chris Raynaud, and it follows Gru, played by Steve Carell. He is a villain with aspirations. He would like to steal the moon, and so. He takes a loan from the evil bank, which in the film's best joke has above its its um, name on the building, 
formerly known as Lehman Brothers. <laughs> mm. um, but uh, he needs he needs a, a loan from the evil bank to get a shrink ray, mm. and but once once he goes out to find the shrink ray to steal it, basically from the scientist developing it, it is snatched by his rival Vector, voiced by Jason Siegel, and he can't get into Vector's compound. But Vector does have a sweet tooth for girl guide cookies, and so. Gru adopts three orphan girl guides, Margot, played by Miranda Cosgrove, Edith, played by Dana Geyer, and Agnes, played by Elsie Fisher, so that they can basically get through the front door and he can steal his shrink ray. But he finds himself charmed by them along the way, unexpectedly. Uh, This is cute, but it's not for my age bracket. Um, It's a nice idea. The villain becomes invested in the children, and, you know, it's a sweet, cute, you know, slightly, slightly left of center, slightly like there's there's the the hint of an edge, but not the actuality of it. Mm. If that makes sense, there's just the feeling that it's slightly out of the norm, but it's fun. You know, it's goofy humor, appealing enough. It's definitely for kids, save for a few moments like the Lehman Brothers joke, which got the biggest laugh out of me than pretty much anything else in any of the three Despicable movie. Despicable Me movies I've watched, but uh, Gru is quite likable. He's not a very good bad guy. Um, he, you see right from the start that he's he's not actually bad. He's a tryhard, really. Yeah, and that's you know, if I was analysing this as a serious plot, I would have a problem with that and say that you you need to set up this arc more. He needs to have more to lose and more to gain. But this is a children's film, and so it's not really a valid criticism. The, you know, the story with the adorable children is sweet, and the minions are a lot of fun. Um, we, we, I'm sure we will get into this in our deep dive of minions, but the cultural burnout from those characters isn't from the Despicable Me movies. No. Um, it's from Facebook. <laughs> the, the voice cast is decent, but Will Arnett and Russell Brand are seriously miscast, I think. Mm. Their voices just don't fit. Um but the animation is fairly basic as well. This was on the cheaper scale of animated movies, um, and it was, I believe, one of Illumination's first films. Uh, but if you would like to watch along at home, it's available for streaming in Australia on Prime Video, Binge, and Foxtel Now. Uh, this leads me to my last entry of the week, of course, Despicable Me 2, again directed by Coffin and Renault. Gru is recruited by the Anti-Villain League, to go undercover in a mall to find a villain that is using the mall as a hideout to mass-produce a serum that makes people crazy and violent. Um, And so he goes undercover with another anti-villain league agent named Lucy, played by Kristen Wiig. Um, They really didn't have an idea for this. I mean, this is a movie born out of the fact that its predecessor made a lot of money rather than that they had any decent idea for a story, it's straining for a setup, and the ideas just don't cohere. I mean, the AVL, the Anti-Villain League, there's not really much done with it. The villain ends up being a big damp squib when you finally find out who the villain is. And the girls, which, I mean, that was the big success of the first film, was the relationship between Gru and the girls. The girls are totally backgrounded. They really have no idea what to do to them, what to do with them now that the... Um, the relationship with Gru has been established. There's a lot more minions uh, this time than there were in the first movie, but they are still used quite smartly, I believe. Um, and they're a lot funnier and more fun to watch than Lucy, 
I'm, I'm, I've never been a big Kristen Wiig fan. I've never found her funny in pretty much anything. And they've somehow managed to make this animated character very much a Kristen Wiig character. Um, so your mileage may vary uh, depending on your own opinions of her. Uh, it still manages some sweet moments and the animation has improved. There's some creative visuals, uh, but it, it does feel sort of rushed given the success of the first film rather than, you know, actually crafted with time and care and cause. Uh, it has a tease in the credits. As the credits play, there are like minions in the background auditioning for the minions movie. Mm. Um, and really that does seem like, I mean, we'll talk about this more, but like the minions overtook the franchise that they came from. Yeah. They're in uh, the vanity plate for Illumination. They don't even just infect the Despicable Me franchise or the Minion Domination. Or, no, sorry, the Minion Dominion, as Binge likes to put it. No, 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 no. They have to infect every other movie that these people put out. Um, If you would like to watch at home, the film is available for streaming on Prime Video, Binge, and Foxtel Now. But that is me done, other than a piss take, but we'll get to that. What about you guys? What have you been watching? Yep. Uh, so, we kind of had a vampire-heavy week. Mm. Um, obviously, a vampire shows up in Minions. Spoiler alert. Uh, but we figured, hey, just go on Shudder, see what we can find, you know. So we picked Dracula 3D by Dario Argento. Oh, God. Uh, I know, I know vague. This is the one with the praying mantis inexplicably, uh-huh. isn't it? Yeah. And it's one of the best re- moments in the entire film. <laughs> um, one of, but we'll get to that. But, interestingly enough, when we were talking about this and writing our notes for today, uh, Holly said, I don't want to mention the praying mantis, it's a bit of a spoiler. But then Lawson uh, kicked the gates uh, open. It's, it's literally in the trailer. Which, Fine. Yeah. We didn't I, watch. The I trailer. saw that. I saw. I saw that trailer ten years ago when it first came <laughs> out, and that's. I, that's how I remember that movie. It's like, oh right, that's the Dracula that had that praying mantis in the trailer. Yes. Uh. So, uh, Dracula 3D, also known as Dario Argento's Dracula in other regions, is a 2012 horror movie. Uh, English gentleman Jonathan Harker visits the exotic castle of Count Dracula to be its new. Librarian. Uh, Jonathan Harker is played by Unax Ugalde, uh, whereas Count Dracula is Thomas Kretschmann. Uh, Harker is entranced by the mysterious aristocrat. Harker subsequently goes missing, and when he does so, his wife Mina, played by Marta Gastini, arrives in the Carpathian town of Paso Borgo to search for him, staying with childhood friend Lucy Kisslinger, played by Asia Argenta. But all is not right with this small town. As dark forces descend on Lucy and Mina, who end up seeking help from the only man who can aid them, legendary vampire hunter Abraham Van Helsing, played by Rutger Hauer. <laughs> uh, John, uh, say your short piece. On so this. Rutger Hauer is actually interesting here. He plays Van Helsing as if he is just absolutely tired of the entire deal. And I think that's because Rutger Hauer sleepwalks his way through the movie while simultaneously being the best part of it. He cuts a dude's throat like it's nothing. Like he's like he's slicing into a loaf of bread to make a sandwich. Oh, even less effort. Yeah, th- sort of <laughs> offhandish, just 
and he just ends this person's life. He casually kills. Yeah. The Dracula here is actually quite interesting. He's very soft-spoken, so much so that the audio tracks for tracks for the film suffer for it. He is a low-talker, you see, in that very Seinfeld way. But when he needs to throw up out, when he needs to kill people, he does it in a very Argento way. There's a lot here that harkens back to his previous style with stuff like Suspiria. But, God, the years have not been kind to Mr. Argento. The lack of budget kills this movie. The, the intro, the effects for certain scenes are just mm. horrid, and they almost convince us to stop watching. Mm. Uh, this is late-stage Argento, so there is very little budget to speak of. It is truly uh, a, a passion project, you could say. Um, he always you don't... wanted to make one. Yeah. Uh, which means the movie, for the most part, just looks like ass. Um, overexposed and shot in 3D for no apparent reason. Uh, so it's always, like, kind of soft in the focus. And a lot of day shots that just m- much too bright. That mixing with the overexposure just kills it, those It cheapens scenes. the whole thing. Uh, Kretschmann and Hauer are by far the best performances in the movie as Dracula and Van Helsing, respectively. John mentioned that the sort of audio issues with Kretschmann's Dracula, but I like the poise he has. Um, Hauer's Van Helsing has a pretty big body count, and by the end, Dracula gets this really cool scene where he butchers a room full of guys. And it's actually pretty creatively staged. That's not the scene with the praying mantis? No, separate. That comes later. That comes later. Yeah. Uh, Kretschmann's Dracula is, uh... Fairly different from the film's obvious inspiration, which is uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. Uh, there's a whole thing of, like, uh, resurrected love bullshit yeah. that annoyed the shit out of me the first time, and is thankfully in the background here. Uh, however, Crutchman, I think, is much more successful than Gary Oldman. It's a much less flighty and much more poised performance. You can see the, the aristocratic roots of this guy, and he becomes this much more sinister figure, not just to our primary protagonists, but also to the town and, and on the whole. And he doesn't become sympathetic, either. No. He stays a monster the entire time. The stranglehold he has on this town and its people yeah. is <coughs> immense. Almost uh, Athens sending their people to Crete to face the Minotaur yeah. thing. That kind of energy, but... Uh, Overall, this is not the worst adaptation of Dracula that I've seen or engaged with. And Argento clearly had ideas, like the amount of shape-shifting that Dracula does, uh, the idea that he controls this little town, but this really does hold very little of Argento's trademark style, from his history as becoming, like, the father of Italian horror. Whole genres were formed based on some of the work he did. This is Dario Argento. He made Suspiria, for Christ's sake. And half the reason you watch an Argento film is the style, and this is just completely lacking here. The ADR is also absolutely horrid. Uh, yeah, I don't know why. Like, clearly they weren't... They had clearly focused on making this movie for English audiences. Mm. So I don't know why it's the same issue as always. But at the end of the day, this is a fun one. It's got some neat ideas, it's got some fun moments, it's got Root Gahawa playing a Van Helsing that both cares too much and doesn't care at all, uh, and Crutchman's a really good Dracula. 
Um, but yeah, just good bit of fun. You can find that on Shudder. Yeah, and also the script by Asia Argento isn't really that crash hot. It's a bit iffy. There are good ideas here, yeah. but the execution leaves a bit to be des- oh. desired. No Demeter. No Demeter. The ship does not function in this the- one. It's set completely in uh, the Carpathian Mountains. However, that is not the same case for this next film. As we said, Vampire Kick, very much focused on Dracula. Yeah. Which will go forward this next week uh, that you will hear in our next episode. We watched Dracula, dead and loving it. This is a Mel Brooks film starring Leslie Nielsen as Dracula, Mel Brooks as Van Helsing, Peter McNichol as an absolutely gold-tier Renfield, and Stephen Webber as Jonathan Harker. He's played pretty much the same as he is in the Coppola version, except for comedy instead of played straight. This is Mel Brooks' parody of the classic vampire story and the vast majority of its film adaptations, but I'll let, her- <coughs> uh, yeah, I'll let Holly say his piece. You'll know the story of Dracula at this point. It's one of the most well-known horror classics of its generation, <coughs> and I said variation upon variation upon variation. I really like this version of the story. It has clear influence from Coppola, and it pokes fun at Bram Stoker's Dracula in that regard. Uh, just some of the, the decisions Leslie Nielsen makes as a performer here, but also just design sensibilities. Like that first scene in the town <coughs> with the backdrop and then the lighting and everything yes. looks like Coppola's. It looks more Argento than Argento's Dracula. <laughs> Which is really sad, actually. Um, But, you know, I love the Dracula story, and I think this is a really funny version. I love Mel Brooks's Van Helsing. And the sort of petty back and forth he eventually has with Dracula. Like, constantly trying to get the last word in. Um, and I also just, like, I don't know, it, it's a lot of fun. It's a yeah. lot of fun. Uh, yeah, Leslie Nielsen's a fun enough Dracula. It's got better special effects than a movie from 2012. Uh, but that just goes to budget, I suppose. Yeah, this is actually, similar to Argento, later stage Mel Brooks. Mm. Uh, this <laughs> looks, sounds, and feels like it came in his heyday with the original producers, mm. with History of the World Part 1. This was actually filmed in the 90s. As we said, it takes influence from Coppola's film, and from a lot of different ones. There's a uh, scene in the opening where they play with the whole weird brain hairdo that Dracula has in the Coppola version, and that is used multiple times throughout the film, mm. as well as the shadow moving independently. It's actually pretty faithful, all things considered. More faithful than Argento's. It does the Demeter arriving in London, and all of the stuff with him buying Carfax Abbey, and all of that stuff. And it sticks pretty close to those plot points. Mm. A few changes aside, uh, Dr. Seward is now Lucy's father. No, Mina's father. Uh, Yeah, Mina's father. Yeah, It's Mina Seward. There are changes made here. That actually do help it sort of... It streamlines Keep the, her a better pace. Although I feel like they could have had a lot of fun with the suitors, but... Oh, yeah. That's for another time. Yeah. But they were missing. Nielsen is actually kind of imposing as Dracula when he's not playing it for laughs. When he goes for the chuckles, he gets them. He goes for the throat at occasions, pun intended. But he really does cut an imposing figure as Dracula when he needs to. He can be quite regal. 
Yeah. Uh, when he's, like, standing still and moving through space. And Dracula. the horror beats and ideas are actually quite well thought out. There's a scene where uh, a vampire has kidnapped a child and has turned her, and you don't get the happy ending in that scenario, which you don't expect from a parody. No, it, no, no, that was... Uh, that no, no, was no, from... that was in this as well. Oh. Yeah. It, hmm. it actually does some creepy things, and there's a scene where Nelson reveals himself as a vampire to a crowd of people, and he's actually quite threatening there. McNichols as Renfield, as I said before, absolutely incredible. Gold standard. Uh, the nervous energy he brings from all of his previous characters, as well as characters he would later play. We know Peter McNichols as Janusz in Ghostbusters 2, and that, that was before this, but after this, he was... Uh, in the first Mr. Bean the movie. the first Mr. Bean movie, as the guy... And I know him from all five seasons of Ally McBeal, which I have seen. Yes. yes. So you agree that he's got a great nervous energy. Oh, absolutely. He's yeah. incredible and here. He's like and peak Renfield. Yeah, he's, he, he's great at showing how pathetic this version of Renfield is. When he's in his scenes with Nielsen, he's just absolutely stellar. Not he's the most also- pathetic Renfield of the... Not the most pathetic Renfield <laughs> of, of the, the night, week, no. <laughs> but he's actually really fun here. He's got a particular scene at a fancy lunch, which is uh, in which he's a scene stealer. Mm. This isn't as funny as previous Brooks affairs, though. It's still worthwhile if you're interested in a more comedic vampire flick. It's like, oh, uh, what scary movie is to scream? Uh, like what scary movie is to scream? This is the couple as Dracula. Yeah, it focuses. It focuses very much on doing. It's kind of laser. It's laser tight. It's it's laser focused on a particular thing, much like the original scary movie was. Although funnier than scary movie. Yeah, but it's not (laughs) as funny as previous Brooks films. The certain beats are sort of wearing thin, Mm. but there are some great parts of physical comedy here. Mm. Overall, I do suggest uh, seeking this one out. Forgotten where we watched it though. Wasn't Shudder, it was somewhere else. I think it was Amazon Prime. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it would have been. But we also watched another thing. This is a thing we started last week, but only really got the time to finish this week. Technical issues with Shudder. Technical issues and all that. We watched Scare Package 2 Brad Chad's Revenge. Now, we spoke about the original Scare Package uh, earlier last year, but this is the sequel, directed by a Fast group of people. It's a anthology. Anthology series. It's an anthology film. When horror tragic Rad Chad Buckley's funeral turns into a la- an elaborate series of horror movie quotes and rehashes, the guests must band together and use the roles of horror to survive this bloody game. That are uh, that is most of those words taken from the actual official synopsis. Although I changed a few things. See if you can guess what those were. Okay, I'll say say my short piece. This sucked ass. Um, I like to be a little more, you know, positive than that. And I, I liked certain segments of the first scare package. You know me. I love me some anthology horror, and I really like what Shutter puts out. But at some point, you just have to think when you're watching this movie. Christ, horror fans can be annoying. Like the two, the two obvious uh references in the wraparound. The big one is Saw, um, but there's also a Hellraiser one that comes a little later on, which is Insipid. 
a Hellraiser slash Friday the 13th. No, not Friday the 13th. Uh, uh, Nightmare on Elm, Elm Street, Street Dream Street. Warriors reference. They could have went for the Dream Warrior reference, and they didn't. Um, yeah, but... Uh, there's, there's, but an anthology does rest upon its segments. The first scare package had some pretty decent segments, really some interesting ideas, but they sidelined the shit out of them here. Oh, yeah. Um, they are so much more interested in t- telling the wraparound, which, as I said, is insipid. Um, and they just don't give them the time. Uh, the first two are pretty weak as segments. Uh, the first one is basically discussing the... I'll uh, be talking about that in my yeah. box. Um, I've got a whole... But- <coughs> I've got a whole list of notes for yeah. this one. But, I- like, I don't know. The last of the segments has some interesting ideas, and it's an interesting stage because it's not, not like, name-dropping shit mm. all the time. <coughs> but, like, the third segment had an interesting idea, and it was shot inst- interestingly, but, like, somebody kneecapped the shit out of it in the mm. edit. Yeah. Like, it's like, the, it's like they were told that they had to shorten it mm. for the wraparound to get the time it apparently needed, um, which it just wastes anyway. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I just... I, I had a bad time with this one. I, I don't just... like saying that. I know, like, your catchphrase is the opposite of that. Uh, You have a good time with everything. I was disappointed by this. All sense of letting the audience figure out what the references are, like they did in the first scare package. Up to a point. Up to a point. has That's just gone out the window completely, with characters directly quoting both the films and saying what the name of those films are. Segments are either far too short to give us any explanation of character, plot, and the facts of the world we're inhabiting, or way, way too long. An example being the wraparound we spoke about. When you wrap around for the anthology, it takes up most of the runtime, and the segments feel like an afterthought, with some having truly nothing to do with the games being played in the plot, it feels lazy and self-indulgent. Certain segments seem to have confused messaging and baffling references. A character in Alexandra Barito's Welcome to the 90s, which showcases the transition away from 80s Final Girls to 90s Final Girls, uses Ellen Ripley from Aliens as an example of an 80s Final Girl, as sort of one of these bookish... Virginial... Virginial uh, Final Girls like Nancy and... Laurie. Laurie and, and all of that. Which... But does, Ripley is like... Com- is completely divorced from that idea. It does idea. not fit. Ripley does not fit in that group. She fits far better into the 90s era where they kick ass and take names because that's who Ripley is. It's who she becomes throughout the series. No, just a completely false reading of Alien. Just a false reading of that character. <coughs> There's one good segment called We're So Dead. It's directed by Rochelle Wiggins, an Aussie filmmaker. It riffs on Stand By Me, It, The Fly, and Reanimator, but it only uses the setup from these Oh, films. Pet Cemetery as well. Pet Cemetery as well. It chooses to let the references speak for themselves within the plot and the characters and all of that, rather than actually just saying quotes from those things. It does all of these very well, and it's thoroughly entertaining. It lets itself be this kind of pastiche of kid-centric horror films where by the end there's little to no actual consequences for the child Mm. protagonists, which I found really interesting, and they ended on a pretty funny moment. 
and kind of heartfelt moment as well. Overall, I'm quite disappointed in this. The effects on the melting of people, though, are top-notch. And there's a decent skinless man outfit that's used in that Hellraiser sequence. And the person who's in that skinless man suit is actually one of the funniest parts of the movie. Not by much. it doesn't seem like he's supposed to be. Uh, It's a good example of just because a cast and crew are having fun, that does not always translate to the audience. And I actually looked this up on the drive back down. Uh, because we were on holiday when we watched Minions. Shock horror. because uh, things can never go my way. Uh, I'm in... We're in the minority of opinions towards Scare Package... Scare, scare Package, package two. 2? Yeah, sorry. I'm, a, I'm even having trouble remembering the name of this. It's... I don't understand why so many people love it. There are so many glaring flaws here that... I just couldn't get past. Uh, my last bit that I'll say about it, the actor who plays Chad, uh, Jeremy King. Rad like, Chad. Yeah, like, he's not rad. I'm just going to call him Chad. All the power to you, dude, but you're clearly not as funny as you think you are. Um, It just comes up. The, the whole the thing. character comes up. The whole as... thing comes off as too try-hardy. Yeah. Um, I it's, don't know. It's said to be a love letter towards horror and the people who love it, but it seems more like it's stealthily trying to insult them. I love horror, and I just found it annoying. Yeah, but that's what we've seen <coughs> within the week. You have a pith take, Lawson. I do indeed. I have been playing a video game, and I have finished that oh, video really? game. Oh, really? You and finished it? If, if you're saying to me, Lawson, but the last time you talked about a video game was six months ago, have you been playing the same video game <laughs> since then? The answer, dear listeners, is yes. Because I have finished The Elder Scrolls for Oblivion. He dreams uh, in that game engine now. Whenever he picks up an object <laughs> at the office, he has to interact with it like mm. it's in Oblivion. I just don't have as much time on my hands with my job now. So, And I've got the movie list that takes priority. Like, so it's taken me quite a while to get through this. It's also a long game, all, all things it is. said. Um, it's, it was this was pre-Bethesda, yeah? Pardon? No, this is Bethesda. You're thinking Fallout. Uh, no, yeah, uh, right. Elder Scrolls has always been Bethesda. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I played 219 <coughs> hours of this. Um, it is a video game, but it's an open-world RPG developed by Bethesda Game Studios. It's set in the fantasy land of Tamriel, where the emperor of that land is assassinated, and a nameless hero is caught up in a quest to find an heir, but that is complicated by the imperial... Uh, by the appearance of what is called Oblivion Gates, which are these sort of d- portals to a demonic dimension, um, and they're tearing apart the fabric of reality that's going to let the demon realm take over unless they're stopped. Sick. But uh, obviously this is hugely influential. It's the granddaddy of open-world RPGs, and the gameplay loop is still just unmatched. I'm such a sucker for it. The go and explore the world, find locations, do side quests, talk to NPCs. I mean, there's just so much stuff as evidenced by the fact that I played it for 219 <laughs> hours. Um, the gameplay is basic, but it, it gets the job done. It's really the loop that keeps it going, though. And the world building is great. I love the lore and the detail that everything is sketched out with, the history, the little short stories that are make up the in-game books. Because you read and the I read books, too. All of them, How yes. How actually... out of that playtime do you reckon was solely combing through lore in the books? Well, I read 
Here's the thing. I read 250 of them because I had to write them down so I could keep track of which ones I'd read. Because, of course, he made a list. (laughs) And then... And then after I finished the main quest, I went on the Elder Scrolls wiki and literally went down the list of books in alphabetical order and went and found the remainders at the locations listed Jesus. on that wiki. So I have read all of the books. Lawson, um, uh, this is something that I share in common with Lawson. Uh, when we reach a new, <coughs> a new space in a open world game, we segment that shit. Uh, mm. We get everything done within the area that we need to before we move on. Uh, but I I looked it up, and apparently the word count of all of those books combined is around the same word count as Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, which is the longest Harry Potter book. So if you're asking me how much of my time was that, well, the audible audiobook of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix is 29 hours. Jesus. So <laughs> that's probably <laughs> around the time I've spent reading the in-world books in Elder Scrolls and Oblivion. That's, like, that's not counting the time he's t- taken to actually seek them out. Mm. And Lawson, uh, <coughs> your, your Oblivion book report. Well, that's what I'm saying. I love the world building. Mm. I think it's all extremely well done. I think it's they got like a great variety of stories and history and stuff. And that's one of the things. Like, I wish that um, Bethesda leaned on that a bit more. I, I wish that they had a and d style attitude towards licensing novels. Mm. I wish that there were like 30 novels in the Elder Scrolls world. Because it's that such an interesting world. Some of these. Exactly. Anything can and happen I, there. Yeah. You could have yeah, and- darkness, intrigue, and the lusty Argonian maid. Yeah. There's <laughs> vampires for Christ's sake. It's awesome. Yeah. And I found that so much more interesting than the actual story of the game, which is a huge faceplant. There's just no texture at all. The writing is shallow and uninteresting. The characters are all just these hollow archetypes. I mean, I'll give it a pass because it's working with restricted technology given the time it came out with, platforms it came out on, and it's doing some groundbreaking stuff that means it had to cut corners elsewhere. They were but clearly putting is... all of the time into 29 hours of book. <laughs> well, actually, a lot of those are like imported over from Morrowind, and yeah. a lot of them will be imported over to Skyrim. I think Skyrim's got like 100 new books, but as I said, there's yeah. 250 books in Oblivion. So, um, But, uh, I mean, it's for this reason why... The Witcher 3 is still the apotheosis of this style of game for me. It's it's the perfect blend of that gameplay loop with the world building, there, but actually a really, really good story. Are there books to read? Oh, yes. Witcher? Oh, yes. The, the, <laughs> oh, my God, yes. Are you a master of Gwent? <laughs> oh, shit. I never got Gwent. into the Gwent bit. <clears throat> I played 110 hours of that game before the two expansions came out, but I never got into the Gwent. Uh, uh, I will. I do have to go back at a certain point. Yeah. I'm waiting for the remake of the first game to come out, then I'll do a big oh, playthrough. But whenever it comes to those open world games, and they have like these like small games, like uh like Gwent or the Bone Throwing <coughs> in Valhalla. Uh, a Sanskrit Valhalla had a game called Orlock, uh, and you need to do some of that shit to get achievements, get to 100% completion. <coughs> oh, I played a ton of bowling in Grand Theft Auto 4. Oh, I, like, I got super good hey, at bowling Norman, in Grand Theft Auto 4. Want to go bowling? <laughs> See, whenever one of those things shows up, like, I think they did one of those in Assassin's Creed Origins as well. Mm. Yeah. I, what, bowling? No, 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 no bowling. A, <laughs> obviously, that would have been Actually, epic, I and I would have spent... Games like I would have spent hours on that. They had the chariot racing. Oh, 
Yes. Yeah, they had chariot racing, but they also I, I had other that, little yeah. board game things. Mm. Didn't play a single minute of them. Not mm. interested in these games within games. <laughs> if I'm going to play a board game or card game, I'm just going to play it. I play I'll a video play game if it to has stab like dudes a- in the neck. I'll play it if it has, like, a definitive end. Like, with the chariot things, once you got to the end of yeah. the tournament, there were no new races. Well, yeah, like a but combat with... tournament or a vehicle tournament thing yeah. in a game. That's completely different than sitting down and playing cards with people. <laughs> like, they did that in Although Fable. I did play a lot of poker in Red Dead Redemption. Because I found out that the AI was stupid enough that if I just bet the whole pot on literally the first hand, they'd all fold. Yeah. <laughs> it's the West. <laughs> Their brains are adult. They don't understand. <laughs> they got they got black lung and rats in the brain. Yeah. They got kicked in the head too many times by horses. Anyways, the pacing of the main narrative is also a big blur. Um, mm. The final mission is shockingly sudden. There's no pomp or circumstance to any of it. Um, and the quests aren't as open as people like to remember. People like to remember oh, Skyrim's so much duller than Oblivion, which is so much duller than Morrowind in terms of the quest options. I can't speak to Morrowind, haven't played it. But um, the Oblivion stuff is already fairly straightforward. Uh, the levelling up system has good and bad qualities. I like the idea of the natural development that it mm. does, which is the more that you use a skill, the more it will increase by, by itself rather than sort of having an overall skill level that builds up XP and then you select the skills. I like the idea that if you use your sword a lot, you get better with the sword. But the problem with that is that it eventually punishes you for preferring a play style. Oh, yeah. I I didn't reach the level cap, but still, for like the last 30 hours, I didn't gain a level. Mm. Um, The voice acting is laughably bad. There's like so little variety, so few people that they've hired to actually read these lines. They'll have conversations with themselves in the street. Um, (laughs) They blew all of this money getting uh, big famous voice actors like Peace Stew, like Sean Bean, like Terrence Stamp. But they could have gotten a lot better value from hiring instead of like, keep Peace Stew because he's Peace Stew. But, you know, cut Sean Bean, cut Terrence Stamp. Uh, and instead hire like ten more, <laughs> no, like actual no voice, actors. voice actors. Yeah, yeah. Um, graphically, it is quite aged, but the designs still have their moments yeah. in HD. And there's some very hefty DLC uh, stuff there too. Uh, Shivering Isles is the big expansion they did. They added a whole new map, and that's sort of a fun. Interesting little twisted Alice in Wonderland kind of thing. We we stand um, a substantial expansion pack. Mm. Mm. And the Knights of the Nine is the other big um, DLC, which was the it was basically a, a quest line on the main map, and mm. it's more like it's more an extended side quest, but it's decent. Uh, but if you would like to find it, you can find it uh, on PC, PS3, Xbox 360, and through backwards compatibility on the xbox one and xbox series x and s it is also one of the games uh, on the xbox consoles that has the 4k 60 fps upgrades mm. so i don't have 4k tv but i played it super sampled at 1080p in 60 fps how did it uh, feel at 60 fps because obviously games back then weren't built for that kind of speed i i it felt fine i mean it was i think it was always 60 fps if you had a good enough pc to run it but um but yeah, after playing it for six months, it was weird to go to the next game that I'm currently playing and go back to 30. Yeah, th- <laughs> that, but I, I adjusted. Yeah, that dip down back to 30 would have been horrendous. Mm. Uh, but yeah, obviously you can't find the earlier ones easily available, though. The earlier 
Elder Scrolls. Uh, yeah, I think you can on PC. Yeah. Uh, Morrowind is available. The Xbox, the original Xbox version is available on Xbox consoles yeah. for download. I tried getting into that between playing Divinity, which was the last game I talked about before this one, and Oblivion, but I didn't last very long on yeah. that. It was um, it was very clunky yeah. in terms of its control, especially on a controller. So I think I'm going to... I. I really think it makes a ton of sense for them to just to remake that game eventually. Like, that seems so yeah. obvious to me in my head, especially now that they're owned by Microsoft. But even if they don't, there's like a mod at the moment that's putting it all into the Skyrim engine, yeah. so I might just wait around for that. Well, they, they'll need to stop releasing versions of Skyrim <laughs> before they actually get to that, because mm. you can play that on almost every, everything now. Uh, but yes, that is my piss take. Yep, so uh, there you have it. That's what we've seen within the week. Now we will play for you the trailer to Minions. Minions. Minions have been on this planet far longer than we have. They go by many names. Dave, Carl. Well, that one is Norbert. He's an idiot. They all share the same goal. To serve the most despicable master around. Finding a master was easy. Keeping a master, that's where things got tricky. But nonetheless, they kept on looking. this went on much longer, they would surely perish. But then one minion stepped forward. Kevin felt pride. He was going to be the one to find his tribe the biggest, baddest villain to serve. Stuart felt hungry, mostly. He was going to be the one to eat this banana. And Bob, Bob was frightened of the journey ahead. That was the trailer for Minions. It is an animated family comedy movie directed by Kyle Balder and Pierre Cothon. It tells the origin story of the Minions, a race of yellow, oval-shaped creatures who are apparently immortal, 
and have been searching for an evil master to serve for millennia. Not only immortal, invincible as well. Their general ineptitude usually causes their master's undoing, however, and after accidentally killing Napoleon Bonaparte, the Mingans take refuge from angry Frenchmen in an isolated Russian cave. As the years go by, the species finds itself in a near-suicidal malaise, and so three brave explorers venture forth to find a new master to serve and reinvigorate their brethren with a sense of purpose. Their names are Kevin, Stuart and Bob, all voiced by director Pierre Coffin, and they emerge in 1968 America, which is the same year that Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King were assassinated. I'm just saying. I mean, if they walk past a picture, like a, a thing billboard of Nixon, Nixon, and it's like, they, it, they didn't get a slight inkling to go towards walking the direction of Washington. Like, beeline straight to the Oval Office. Also, they point. had to walk through Serbia to get... That was a campaign poster. He was elected that year. He wasn't in office yet. But still, but he was still. in Washington. <laughs> Out to get a bead on a new boss, they traveled to Villancon the premier exposition for the meanest, wickedest bad guys in the world, now better known as the Republican National Convention. <laughs> On their way, they watched an episode of The Dating Game, which, just ten years later, would have a serial killer on it. Huh. A little early on that front. <laughs> there, they gained provisional employment from the world's first female supervillain, Scarlet Overkill, played by Sandra Bullock. To win a permanent contract, they're going to have to prove their worth, though. Scarlet assigns them a mighty task, to steal the crown of Queen Elizabeth II and, under the ancient laws of finders keepers, transfer to her all rulership of the United Kingdom. You know, go big or go home. What the naive minions don't know, however, is that Scarlet has no intention of rewarding them with extended service. Taking her cues from Richard III, she plans to quietly execute Kevin, Stuart and Bob in the Tower of London once they've done the dirty work for her. What Scarlet doesn't know, however, is that the Minions are terrible at their jobs. So, before we get too deep into this, why don't we each go around to give a timed 30-second speech about our thoughts on Minions. Why don't you start us off, John? Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Three, two, one, go. Look, the best thing about this movie is its needle drops. And there's a moment where one of them gets Excalibur, which is absolutely... Not Excalibur, but the Sword and the Stone, which isn't Excalibur. That's a whole other thing. I'm spending this way too much time on it anyway. It has a bizarre moment in, I think, the middle of the movie, but this movie is so bizarre that I it could be 20 minutes from the end, and I wouldn't be able to tell. Time is slippery when watching this film. All right, you ready, Harley? Yes, indeed. Three, two, one, go. I can't believe I'm saying it, but it's too short. Hear me out. Um, I just find myself completely disconnected from Kevin Stewart and Bob. Uh, obviously, <laughs> their characteristics are plainly obvious. They're, they're very distinct from one another. It's easy to keep track of them in a crowd. But I think it would have served better actually understanding what the Minions say. Like, give us subtitles this time, but no other point in the Despicable Me franchise. If they're going to be our central figures, let's at least get it. And yeah. also, every minion is voiced by the same person, so that doesn't help. <coughs> I really like this movie. I think it's a lot of fun. I think it's very funny. It's the best movie of the Despicable Me franchise. Admittedly, I haven't seen the sequel to Minions yet, but... Um, Who knows? It that one is, could be much better. 
it is a lot of fun and and way better i think than you'd think it is i get a kick out of the minions i get a kick out of their hijinks i'm so against what you're saying harley i think that it's crucial that the minions remain the sort of mute three stooges of of comedy Mm. um i do want to start off with what seems to be something percolating among the two of you, John perhaps more than Harley, but what is it about the minions that seems to get you offside so much? I think I could pull it down to how they've become like... Uh, they've become the poster child for people saying inane, pointless stuff on the internet. On You face- should love them then, John. Oh, <laughs> blow it out your ass. So my main problem with the minions is there was a solid amount of time when Despicable Me came out and it was still a relevant franchise uh, where every... You say relevant franchise, why do you think it's not relevant now? They're still making these damn things, Ron. There was a significant portion of time where I shit you not, I couldn't go a day without seeing someone post something on Facebook which is like, a cheeky looking minion being like, oh it's three o'clock somewhere, or bullshit (laughs) like that. Stupid little dumb affirmations of how special you are, but it's also got a minion doing lovey-dovey face. Or Did you ever see one that said, and in the end, he was an Oxford man? No, that actually would have been funny. That would, would it? Yes, would it because that's playing on what you think uh, a minion meme is going to be. Can I just say, before we get any further... It's nothing that the minions have done themselves. I have to put that out there. It's nothing that they've done themselves. They're perfectly fine so comedic. It's how people have used them. It's how people have yeah. bastardized the point of them. Can I just put this out there? We are so beyond. We're so, so far from this franchise not being relevant. Despicable Me 1 made $543 million worldwide. Despicable Me 2, $970 million. Minions, $1,159 million. Despicable Me 3, $1,034,000,000. And then the most recent release, Minions The Rise of Gru, released in the middle of last year when COVID was still looking a bit iffy, $939,000,000. I mean, it's cultural relevance has dipped. Those those numbers kind of made me a bit sad. Um, That that the Minions have this sort of like insane stranglehold (laughs) over Illumination. Um, Well, we don't... um, we don't do the box office returns anymore, no. but uh, this movie that we're talking about today, Minions, is currently the 24th highest grossing movie of all time and was, at the time of its release, the 10th highest grossing movie of all time. Like, I get it. I do get it. Like, it's it's for kids. It, I do get it. But, okay, my, my thing with the Minions is I've thought about it. I've thought about it. Uh, from the beginning of their existence, they follow the meanest and the baddest, right? This is well. That's the thing. That's the thing I don't get because they all talk about boss, boss, boss. But is the is it ever really stated that they follow the evilest person in the world at any given time, is it or is it just that they come that they find them? Yes. Well, they don't. They don't really. I mean, they find a T Rex. They like, and I'm sure like Napoleon Bonaparte had dodgy stuff going on but can you really say that he was the worst person in existence at that time i don't know i'd have to do the research he's not even the worst very well might but i feel like you know dracula 
Is he really doing more damage than some of the other people that are around Where's during that period of time? Where's the part of them working for Genghis Khan? Where's the yeah. part of them putting people on spikes for Vlad the Impaler? And by the time you get to the present day and they're all working for Gru, I mean, this is not very... I mean, they'd be running the Trump campaign or something. Yes. I don't know. Mm. But they, They'd like, be putting Russian bots onto Facebook that, mm. oddly enough, put would minions. Post minions. It would explain a lot if Putin's war in Ukraine efforts were being run by the minions. Yeah. Um, imagine, okay. imagine if it was the minions who were invading. Okay, so hear me out. The minions were expelled from the service of Napoleon Bonaparte in the year 1812. This is pre-Waterloo, mind you. They were exiled to a, a so an wait, Arctic... does that mean... Just shut up. They were exiled to an Arctic <laughs> cave. Hold on, hold on. Do they kill Napoleon, or do they just no, blow him into the distance with a cannon? It's cartoon physics. I don't think they kill him. They didn't kill him because he still needs to die on that island somewhere. Yeah. Um, And he still needs to lose Waterloo. Or is the Mingans verse a different universe than our own? Okay, just... They have a Nixon. Um, They have a Nixon... They do, but they also have a guy with flippers who is a well-known supervillain. Okay, okay, just, just. I don't recall that. <laughs> just hear me out. I don't know. Has anyone seen uh bloody Mitch McConnell's feet? Okay, just hear me out. They were trapped in an ice cave for a very convenient span between eighteen twelve and nineteen sixty eight. Don't get me wrong here. I think it's a very smart call on behalf of Illumination to take them out of circulation for the entirety of both of the world wars. <laughs> exactly. I think that that avoided a lot of questions that were best left Can you asked. imagine if the opening thing to this showed minions throwing a bomb into Archduke Franz Ferdinand's car and then running away after that? Actually, that would have been really funny. It would have been a very different movie. But look, look, here's the thing is like even going back to the the original sort of March of the Penguin style opening that this movie has Do they have with, an inbuilt Rush. need to okay. work? I, I'm is not it, sort of a They serve a boss. Caller. They serve a figure yeah, of authority. I, I'm not saying that serving... during this period of exile that you've got uh, some minion down in the cave carving swastikas into the ice. Like... <laughs> All I'm suggesting is that one cold Dallas morning in 1968, <laughs> Lee Harvey Oswald was framed for a that crime. That was 60, 63. 63. I'm just saying that if they were They were around, still in the cave then, as far as we know. I'm just saying. That it, did Oliver Stone look into this, though? This is what we've got um, to figure out. All I'm saying is... Are Lee, the minions working for the feds? Look, I'm just saying, Lee Harvey Oswald might have been set up in that universe, right? And it was two minions in a trench coat on the grassy knoll. <laughs> okay, I question, did, question. I... Is that all of the minions who are stuck in that cave, or have there been splinter groups, sort of schisms? Have they all I think so. have they all developed well, together as a society, or have there been ones that just got lost some? Like, like some the point? penguins well, he... that walk into the big freeze. Yeah, the, like, like the penguins that get deranged and lose direction. <laughs> You're asking if there's a deranged minion out there that's sort of like this immortal assassin taking out all of the important figures of history. If you look at a picture of Agent 47 and a picture of a minion, I'm just saying there are similarities there. They both vaguely smell like rot. It gets to the fact that for for as much 
time as they spend at the beginning of this movie setting up the minions origins and sort of this sort of fairy tale style beginning of you know little anecdotes about the stuff that they did they don't answer any questions about the minions whatsoever they sort of evolve out of the primordial ooze completely intact they don't change whatsoever in the millions of years between they've reached out of then perfection. and now they they are the <laughs> They're okay, apex creatures. They are the they are the they are the apex creatures because not only do they routinely you know sort of bump off the biggest and strongest, they're also functionally immortal and almost completely invincible. We've never we've never been provided with an example of a minion dying. Well, we've <coughs> never been provided with an example of literally anyone other than the T Rex dying in these movies. Dracula, yeah, but- Dracula. Oh yeah, it's true. To be fair, that's like a second Man, death I, as he's on I death. I don't know, they're gonna have to thaw her back because <laughs> But at least like Herb's human heart is Okay, like uh Gru's father is dead. That's true. Uh that's there true. is the Off the screen. threat of death looms over mortal beings in this universe. Otherwise not what so for the minions. Do, otherwise what point do bloody villains have if the threat of death doesn't exist? Like I'm I'm just saying, like, minions there's a Don't... guy dressed like the Grim Reaper. He might actually be the Grim Reaper. He gets shaken into a pile of bones by one blow. I'm just saying, the minions don't seem to be capable of death. Why Why can I remember that? Jesus. Well, this is the thing. This is the thing I'm trying to unpack is that they don't... There's nothing in the text of the movie anywhere other, I suppose, in their association with the Despicable Me franchise as a concept. But there's nothing in the movie, the text, in the narration from Jeffrey Rush. There's nothing that says that they seek out the biggest, baddest person out there. They go to the person they come across who seems like... The biggest an and alpha, the baddest and the strongest. Exactly. But it's not like they do the research. It's like they found a T-Rex and they're like, oh yeah, boss, boss. We're gonna yeah. be the T-Rex is going to be our boss If they were now. doing the research, you'd hear the them like screaming banana with black boxes throughout the world. Like crushed planes and shit. Yeah. <laughs> like... My God, Harley. But would they, or would they be like, you know what, the best boss is, I don't know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt or something. <laughs> or would would they have like ever pick been, a? Well, I'm just I, saying, like his development of the park system probably wouldn't have counted him towards biggest and baddest. It, well, exactly what I'm saying is: is it biggest and baddest, or is it just most authoritative? Because we never see them come across. We never see them sort of come across a boss. At a point, like, they sort of just attach to the first person that they see. Like sucker fish. Like leeches. Yeah. I suppose at the end, they do pass over Queen Elizabeth for a 12-year-old, a 10-year-old. But that might also just be their understanding of the um, democratic monarchy. Um, they might have a greater understanding of it than we think and understand that the royalty has no real power. No, no, no. They'd be... that it's whoever holds the crown who holds a figurative... Yeah. They would have to go to Downey Street to find the real monsters. Um, but, like, here's the thing. In in the movie as presented, I don't know. I just, I'm stuck on the whole minion angle of it. Why do they do what they do? What what separates each individual minion from the other? You you talked about a uh, article that you read where some reporter uh, sent the first oh, segment oh, of minions How did they to- not reference this? Margaret Thatcher was... Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Margaret Thatcher was Prime Minister of the United Kingdom at the point in time where this movie takes place. 
I don't believe she was, John. I'm looking at it. Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, 1979 to 1990. That's ten years after this movie takes place. Oh, shit. This movie takes place in 68. Sorry, sorry, I'm getting my numbers mixed up. Yeah. They would have served that. They would have served Thatcher otherwise. Uh, Well, this is... Yeah, this is the thing that we're getting hung up on that I don't think any of the target audience is going to get hung up mm. on, which is the logistics of the Minions as a concept, as a species. Um, you were referencing the article that I I was reading, Harley. It's an article... Uh, I'll try and find it so I can cite the author, but it's an article about, um, basically, how would the Minions... What are the Minions? How do they reproduce? On an evolutionary um, level, they kind of don't make any sense. Um... Actually, if you think about it, they make perfect sense. They're small, they're meant to be adorable, they are non-threatening in terms of the way they look. Uh, Everything about them emphasizes that they are not a threat in and of themselves. Plus, they are also invincible and incredibly accident-prone, so anything that does try to take a bite out of them is more likely to die through misadventure. And, to be fair, they are yellow. Which is like the universal "do not eat." Exactly. <coughs> so I, it's the article. You know. The article is um, the despicable biology of minion sex, written by Brian Van Hooker for Mel Magazine, and he he consulted a um, a evolutionary biologist <laughs> to discuss this. Basically, strangest day is, in that person's life. Um, but this is a, a fairly. A fairly sort of basic question that the movie just expects you to move right past. I think it's yeah. been the same minions throughout all of history. No, I it is. They, think they've from the beginning of time. This yeah. is just them. Yeah, they don't yeah. have any kind of genitalia to speak of. They do have arseholes, but obviously, almost every creature. Well, do does. they? Do, we don't ever see them from the front, John. They use complete. They they we see their butts very often. Also, there is that moment. When I think it's Stuart is in that hot tub with his groupies, aka two yellow fire hydrants, and he seems to be getting very sweet on them. So that brings up the possibility of a minion having sex with fire hydrant. I don't know. I just I don't want to get stuck on that specific <laughs> question. Sure, but when it comes but to their the question whole gets thing, raised in the film, Harley, <coughs> by that simple scene. It happens for just a second, but it's burnt into my skull, Polly. But then you're getting into the logistics of how did the minions come out of the primordial ooze fully formed as a species, if not through reproduction? How did they how did they become, you know, as I learned reading this article, the the official social media for the Despicable Me franchise confirmed that Gru uh, commands 10,400 minions. That's a lot. So, how that ten thousand four hundred would just sort of show up at the same time as a product of evolution with the same culture, like it, it would have to be a level of of sort of. Well, especially since yeah, the movie I'd, starts with like three progenitors. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how we got here, but uh, maybe <laughs> it is interesting of them that came out of different, came up, walked onto different beaches. It is interesting that. We spent the movie spends so much time on this. It spends like the first twenty minutes they have narrated a by sounding Jeffrey, Jeffrey Rush. Rush. Talk about it. I don't know. If he sounds depressed. He's, I mean, he's he got sounds like, into it. 
He's got like this weird chuckle to his voice that was kind of creeping me out a bit. <laughs> the, way says, the way he says banana gives me the banana. Ick. It gives yeah. me the ick. I don't like it. <laughs> but like, if they had not had that segment, if we just sort of turned up with them, if the, if the movie had just sort of started with them accidentally killing their former um, master and then going to Villain Con to find a new one, we wouldn't be asking this no, question. Completely if something been, they could have. They've brought it on themselves. Like they, um, they could have explained it. Like someone just developed them. I yeah, I had. I mean, I admit I had the question about the minions when I saw Despicable Me. You know, where, what are these things? Where do they come from? Gru doesn't seem competent enough to like genetically engineer and the, these creatures. And the scientist he's working with doesn't seem to be at all interested in developing more living, breathing organisms. Just. Focusing on fart guns and whatnot. Crew's more of an engineer than a biologist. He's more of a hands-on evil doctor. Yeah, but it's like um, it's like an Oompa Loompa thing. I mean, you don't really, you just sort of don't think about it. Yeah, they turned up. Well, yeah, the Oompa Loompas came eccentric. from Land. <laughs> yeah, it, I know. It, it's like the it's like the keepers from Mass Effect. They, yeah, they, they just sort of turn up. It's just they do their thing. <coughs> yeah. Um. Okay, let's get on to some of the specifics about the film itself. What do you think? Way of- higher body count than you'd expect. Yeah. Frankly. Like, I wasn't expecting the movie to start with several fairly, like, violent deaths, like a, a dinosaur dropping in a lava was one thing, but literally seeing Dracula vaporised. Mm. <laughs> like, it's a pretty good gag, though. That <laughs> they're waking him up for a surprise birthday party. <laughs> uh, they- like... This is the thing I will say right off the bat. I'm going to state my claim that this movie is funny, and it is funnier the more absurd it is. It's the, funnier the like the more where they out pull there. The sword it is. from the stone is the best moment in the film. The moment because it comes out of nowhere. The mo- the first time we saw this movie, which would have been around the time it came out, when that happened, I was like, "What? You're going to not- pivot this hard right now?" I won't go with the sword in the stone bit, but. King Bob's speech to his subjects, <laughs> which is through the contextual clues of the reactions of his compatriot minions, is apparently a very well spoken and very well considered speech with with a lot of like laugh lines in it, yeah. and they're they're like all think it's pretty good, but then at the end everyone's just staring at him confusedly, and then this is this long pause, and he goes, "King Bob." <laughs> I think that sums up politics pretty well. Best best part of the movie for me. Um, like, okay, let's talk about their language. Uh, minionese, which is what the language has been labelled as. I've it's an amalgamation of several different a- languages plus gibberish. Yes. Yeah. So the languages that have been picked out by people, and I'm looking on the Despicable Me fandom wiki. Uh, minionese. Oh. <coughs> uh, also referred as minion language or banana language, is constructed language used by the minions. Uh, little bits of Spanish, Italian, uh, Chinese, Tagalog, obviously uh, French of and Russian, <coughs> English thrown in there for emphasis, particularly banana. Uh, so any particular language group would only get like a fraction of understanding from the minions, and they do have a consist. It is a consistent language too. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Which is so Absolutely tiring. Baffling. It's baffling. I can only imagine what it was like recording that shit. <laughs> like because you have to, like you kind of have to script it a little bit to make sure it's consistent. <coughs> and 
and I cannot imagine how brain-melting that experience would have been. Well, apparently, you know that scene where they travel, all of the other minions, when they get word that they're, to be, they're being summoned yeah. uh, f- for a new master, they travel all over the place and they go across Australia and then they, they jump the channel and end up in... Where is it they end India. up in? India, yeah, because we're super close to India down here. Um, but apparently that's a different location depending on where you're watching the movie. Huh. I, so like, it when, if you're, I like it when things do that. Yeah, but like... This sort of implies this whirlwind travel all over the world since the beginning of time, basically. Since for as long as there has been language, there have been minions. In fact, one might argue that given that the minions predate humanity and the existence of language, that we have actually taken... They're the progenitors of modern language. Exactly. And much like the ancient aliens um, building pyramids. They built the pyramids! (laughs) They did build the pyramids. And we have sort of been... All of these different cultures have sort of been absorbing little bits and pieces of their language, which is how, you know, they have some English words, some Spanish That's words. True. Maybe they're not English words or Spanish words or French they're words. Minionese Maybe words. they're all Minionese and we're all speaking a different offshoot of Minionese. That's true. Maybe we're looking at this the wrong way. Maybe they aren't cosmic. Maybe they aren't servants. Maybe they're like cosmic beings. Like, like, they're shepherds. Um, like Loki figures or something. I don't know. Like ancient this aliens. Is... This is ancient no, no, aliens, no, no. but there's, it's minions. There's, there's not enough actual considered thought behind what they do in order to be a Loki figure. I feel like it's more the ancient aliens well, you, thing. You... As you said, that we saw these... We've got these ideas of gods in world mythology that may have just been minions in different guises. Yeah, because you do have to factor that in, considering mm. both their immortality, invincibility, and existence from the dawn of time. Okay, so the existence, actually, of the British monarchy and the existence of there actually being a bishop in that church means that there had to have been a schism back in Tudor times, which means there had to have, at one point, been a pope, and that also means there had to have been, at least, a version of Jesus Christ. Yes, I follow. Like, I don't mean this in, like, a very casual way. Were minions present? If we are to believe in this sort of string of logic that we're going down, that world religions have potential, and world societies in general... We're getting in uneasy territory here, guys. Is this an Easter movie in more that they resemble eggs in a a rough way? But anyway, um, let's talk about some of the... If if they are gods, wouldn't their sheer presence near Dracula kill him? No, they're not gods. They are... Do they... Well, what is a god? Exactly. Like... They are immortal. They are indestructible. They've been around since the beginning They've of time. We've established humankind. that they gave us language. They built the pyramids. They I mean, fire from Olympus, Harley. How many more proofs of of divinity do you need? At what point do you sort of go, okay, well, these creatures are so far beyond us that they might as well be gods? And, and Ru, they they kill a, evil. They do. A man. Ru <laughs> is a. Si- Rue is simply They a don't man. mean to do it, but they do. Rue is a man, and he holds the reins of how many minions was that? 10,400. 10,400 living gods. Why do you need the moon at that point? Where you could march into any you could house of into government on any Earth. Country. 
You can march into any country and run the world. January 6th had minions involved. <laughs> no, Gru wouldn't have allowed that. Gru is a Democrat. Well, John, think about it. Minions had to be involved. Otherwise, why did they go to Four Seasons Landscaping? I love how completely off the wall this has become as a conversation of minions. The minions the raise a lot of questions. They do. Uh, uh, but back to the specific plot, let's talk about some of the more human characters present. Uh, Scarlet Overkill. Yeah. I'm functional. Fine. I like, she's fine. She's functional. Like, look, look, all of the human beings only exist insofar <laughs> as they, they serve the comedic antics of the minions, and the three well, main minions. They serve the comedic antics and will manifest of the minions. I, I do... The one person, I just don't understand why Scarlet's husband is here. I don't understand why he's a character. I appreciate their, like, legitimately healthy relationship. Yeah, and you get, like, I suppose a decent, like, gag in the, the tower when he starts hanging out with the minions. Like, that's Tr- okay. Trying to torture them, but finds out that they have no limits. But, like, well, yeah. Oh, God, they're, exactly they're like the Cenobites. They are. My God, they are. Like, like I said, they don't, this, ser- they don't serve a Judeo-Christian god. They serve Leviathan. Like I said, the mo- much like last week, this movie has torture in it. The more, the more that you, the more that you start to unpack the implications, and, and not just the implications, but the actual realities of the minions as presented in this movie, the more terrible and awesome they become as yeah. just as creatures. You know, they are functionally unstoppable. Also, completely beyond say- our ken. I do want to say, John Hamm is doing actually pretty good job here and masking who he is, almost as if he's ashamed. Yeah. Well, like, <laughs> almost if you can't exactly, tell. But what's the point? What's the point of that character? And what's the point of wasting John Hamm and the character? What's the point of wasting Michael Keaton as the dad in that family of robbers? There's they no because they don't anyway. sound like themselves. They were going to use them anyway. <laughs> like at that point, like human characters are kind of a waste in a minion-centered yeah. film. If we were going to go with human... I mean, we need the human characters specifically because <laughs> the minions don't speak English. Well, they they don't speak English. They speak English, the pretend and language. And that is a bit of an issue for a children's film. That's why we yeah. get Jeffrey Rush narrating for the first 20 minutes when there are no other humans around because otherwise it would simply be 20 minutes of silence. And I could see how there would be a feeling among producers or studio executives <laughs> that, okay, are the kids going to sit around... For 20 minutes of just visual comedy, or they need sound too. Eh, it would work um, for me as a, like an expressionist piece. <laughs> sort of like but, the Seventh Seal esque. Hey, Buster Keaton made it work with no vocals. But are, what is what we're looking for, or is what we're we're seeing here? <coughs> like, do we need all of these human characters, or could we just have Scarlet and Elizabeth? Just have Scarlet and the Queen. Well, you do need talking the, heads from time to time, but really, in terms of characters, yeah. But you that's could like, point. you could like. I suppose you could alter the plot in that they need to like go undercover at the palace as like Ooh. her stewards or whatever. Oh, one of them dresses up like a corgi. <laughs> you get um, more hijinks that way. You get more hijinks that way. Like, I just feel like <clears throat> the human beings—they're always in—they're always in service of minion hijinks, which is as it should be. It's called minions. It's the function but of the piece. It's the function of the movie. But are we wasting too much time on too many different people? Could we maybe narrow it down a bit and then have a little more of a dynamic villain 
and a little more of a... I mean, it, it is kind of fun to see the Queen as this sort of, like, Jennifer Saunders-voiced, you know, handbag-wielding middle-aged woman, like, smashing these minions around, mm. um, having arm-wrestling matches at the local pub. Mm. Like, Tell me that you could do more do with that. that stuff. Yeah. Mm. I don't know, like, it's it's a balancing act that you need to nail. And I think, like, say what you will about the Despicable Me movies, the minions work when it's a laser focus, when they're just there for the gags, I think. <laughs> there's, there's a short film, or a, sh- a very short film, like four minutes long, on one of the Blu-rays for the Despicable Me, where it's like um, about the littlest girl of the three orphan girls and um, how she, you know, on her bike and... She falls over and the bike falls over and hits the ground and sort of starts crying. Yeah, I've seen and that. the minions, the minions on the front porch, like watching, get like they get up and they run over like it's good fellas and start like kicking the bike, <laughs> beating it up. <laughs> <laughs> and like these are the One moments of the that I, I re- someone with a trash can lid goes for. These are the moments that I really like the minions in. Is is like. The more that they behave in these sort of like absurd fashions, the more I like them. It's why I like King Bob so much as an idea, or the fact that they like the the fact that they're just so inexplicably happy all of the time, and and like the the way the reason I like them is because they don't function as proper characters. That's the strange thing. I like them because they, in all of the ways that appeal to me about them, in all the ways I find the most funny, it's because they don't act like actual sensible three-dimensional figures and that's kind of a bizarre paradox to build an entire movie around kevin is a knight <laughs> kevin is in the order of knights <laughs> yeah yeah but so is but I, captain. It doesn't count. like is it at the end when um one of them's going to be given one of them's going to be given um snow globe a snow globe yeah and uh when they say oh it was all a joke haha and he's about to, like, in front of the entire crowd, he raises up the snow globe like he's going to beat the other minion over there with it <laughs> before he gets distracted by the presentation. Of... I think fornicating minion... with public service waterworks aside. <laughs> I think the minions could serve to be a little more angry. <laughs> I want to see rage in Bob. Well, you kind of see a bit of rage in him. In Despicable Me 2, a whole bunch of them do get dosed they with do. the... Um, the purple shit. The, yeah, the rage virus. Yeah, um, that actually would be funny. Imagine Resident Evil, well, but it's the minions. Speaking of the... They're like the speaking regenerators. Of dis- speaking of Despicable Me, what? I don't think we need Gru in this movie. No, I think, I think it works better if they sort of just walk off into the sunset I don't and know. it's hinted towards. I appreciate it as a little bit of continuity. Sure, but if you're setting it in 68, then that makes Gru in his late 60s in those movies. Yeah, in canon, so yeah. why not just move it to 88? I mean, there is no specific reason why it had to be 68. Yeah. I mean, I guess so they could get the all the British 60s pop culture jokes. I suppose. <laughs> I do like the musical numbers, um, especially when they kind of inexplicably perform the title song from the Broadway musical Hair um, <laughs> to distract those guards. With the, the like, hypno hat thing. Mm. Okay, so... I, I do I do get a kick out of the musical numbers. And I admit, I, I 
I liked the music in this a lot more than I liked him in the Despicable Me movies because I'm not a Pharrell guy. No. Yeah. I don't like his work. So uh, I find it quite irritating. When it really. comes to the minions and music, I have a bit of a story. So I used to get scam calls, scam called a lot. Uh, still happens from time to time, but it was a period in which it was happening pretty frequently. So I developed a strategy. So I would say it doesn't matter what the scammer has called me for. It could be for them pretending they're Telstra, pretending they're the the water company or whatever. And I would just say, uh, just 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 hold on. I just need to go. <clears throat> I don't handle all that stuff for the household. I just need to go grab the person who does. I will be right back. I'll just have to put you on hold. And so I would put on this. This is the boys two men one from the end of the second movie. He's doing a lot. Pierre Carfan or the scammer. No, the the voice <laughs> of the minions. I had yeah, like scammers hang up on me because of that. One guy <laughs> actually waited through two rotations of the song. Because <laughs> <laughs> I said it to repeat and I just left it there. <laughs> but So what did he say when you got back on? He had left by the time Ollie got back. Um uh, it, I, oh, so you just left it until the call ended. I did it like four times, and I think they they recognized <laughs> what I was doing, uh, and then they just stopped calling. <laughs> uh, uh, all right. Uh, so, but like, to give the voice of Dominion's credit. Yes, because he's Pierre Cofan. He's also the director. He's also, <laughs> um, I believe, the writer on no he's not the writer he's the director he's a producer on i think i'm looking at the wrong page there it's it's, it's a producer on something called banana which is a um a short film for the minions blu-ray but he's the director he's the um co-director i should say and the voice actor for the minions i do want to find out is he responsible for the minions, or is it sort of who was the designer of the minions? Who created the minions? Because there's gotta be there's something in that character design that just just grabbed people, you know? No, the the fact they became such their a movies cultural have made thing, like yeah, like the, the minions have made a billion dollars each. Sean. Like, Clearly, something worked. The minion and the fact like why do the minions always show up in those shitty memes and, and Facebook things like? There's something about them that just grabbed hold of people. There's yeah, something, there's something that about does... the media as well, Harlan. Yeah, I'm not saying it's a positive turn for the human race. I'm just saying I'm there's something in the I'm... in the design of them, the very core was... construction of them that just I was oh, just it's running the same thing that, that appeals to people about any kind of small, colorful, loud, obnoxious physical comedy creature in any thing. <laughs> I was just running through the Wikipedia page looking for this. Apparently, uh, after the um, the first movie came out, Roger Ebert described 
Gru's accent in his review as, quote, halfway between a Russian mafioso and a crazed Nazi. (laughs) (laughs) That's not off. That's not far off. Um, Let me see here. The Minions are created by Eric Guillon, the art director. Mm. You'd think, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no shit. This is what Wikipedia says. Apparently, uh, Minions have... Let me see if I can find... Do they have something here on the spread of Minions? Oh, I did remember reading about this. Did you remember the time that um, Google created a button on Gmail that was mic drop? And it all it did was send a GIF of King Bob dropping the microphone to the person. Just a GIF by itself and then immediately and irreversibly block that person. No. No, I don't remember that at all. Somebody they- shows violence. Yes, they did that um, in 2016 for April Fool's Day, Jesus. Uh, and it caused um, and it caused a lot of problems because they replaced it. it there was like a send an archive button on yeah. Gmail, and they put that where that button usually was. Oh, oh god. god, no! So people were oh, just no. clicking it and sending, it, and apparently, like people lost job offers, people. Cause all sorts of imagine, havoc, and apparently, some people probably gets lost an email from the Pentagon. Some people probably just didn't lose job offers; they lost jobs. Um, and uh, apparently, there was also a glitch. Uh, Google had to remove the feature fairly quickly because there was also a glitch that caused the gift to be sent after hitting the regular send button as well. Oh God, oh, no! Lord. Um, <laughs> oh no! Uh, Dominions are getting in everywhere. Google had to know that the moment they tried to do something countercultural and subversive, it wouldn't go well. Oh, by 2016, the Minions were not countercultural. (laughs) (laughs) I'm taking the piss, Lawson. But, like... Okay, here is the actual quote from Google. Today, Gmail is making it easier to have the last word on any email with mic drop. Simply reply to any email using the new send plus mic drop button. Everyone will get your message, but that's the last you'll ever hear about it. Yes. Even if folks try to respond, you won't see us. <laughs> hey, that's a bad thing for an email thing to do. No, but it's such a chaos move. I know, but it's like, <laughs> like that's a bad business idea. I'm just thinking, what psychopath thought that up? Like, just like on principle, okay. it doesn't make sense. <laughs> I've found I this is an this is something that was um circulating on Twitter at that time. Thanks to Mike Drop, I just lost my job. I'm a writer and had a deadline to meet. I sent my articles to my boss and never heard back from her. I inadvertently sent the email using the Mike Drop send button. There were corrections that needed to be made on my articles and I never received her replies. My boss took offence to the Mike Drop animation and assumed that I didn't reply to her because I thought her input was petty, hence the Mike Drop. I just woke up to a very angry voicemail from her, which is how I found out about this hilarious prank. (laughs) Yeah, there you go, Harley. A story direct from the horse's mouth. Hot off the presses about someone actually losing their livelihood due to a minion. It was live for 30 minutes. That's 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 all it takes. That's all it takes. 30 minutes on the internet with the amount of people Use Google email? No. 30 minutes is more than enough. 30 minutes is long enough to cause five hours worth of danger. Like, like damage. That's this was like some... Okay, so it wasn't 30 minutes. Shit. It was 
It was 30 minutes into April 1st on the West Coast. So I think it had already been up three hour, three and a half hours on the East Coast. This shit. That's worse. Um, <coughs> Whoops. Apparently here, yes, it was irreversibly muted the replies <laughs> to any email. <laughs> All that you can say, whoops. Whoops. Like, it's we goofed just... it on that one, fellas. Look, I, I work in marketing. I don't understand how... No one would bring that up as a potential outcome yeah. of that. Lawson, like, people are dumb. Or was this a concerted effort by like one developer to just shit can the whole thing? What sort of taking a shit on his boss's desk and leaving that kind of thing? What if this was this one developer's way to mic drop? <laughs> this sounds like such a joke, but unfortunately, it imagine is not. if someone was trying to. I send sent out an important sh- email to thirty recipients and inadvertently clicked the mic drop sent. <laughs> oh no! I completely did not mean to, and realized what had happened after the fact. Oh god! Imagine if someone was sending something to a rehab clinic. What if someone or to a hospital? What if someone was emailing a will? Well, yeah. What if someone oh, was emailing god. someone to tell them someone is dead? Not, not that people wouldn't just text that shit, but you know what I You're mean. Like, That's such a bad idea. Even oh, Gru wouldn't. What do if, that. what if someone puts in their pay, like, see, someone gets their pay the, through email, and someone presses these the These are the thing. only. These are the only um, April Fool's Day jokes I like. The ones that go terribly wrong. <laughs> oh, yeah. I find the rest of them completely insufferable. I hate them. I hate the fact. The way it takes over the internet for an entire day. The only ones I actually like are the ones ones that that go completely haywire. The ones that backfire spectacularly. That turns out the person who played the joke, they're the April Fool. The (laughs) ones that cause legitimate damage. Mm. Um, That's like a car manufacturer being like, whoops, your brakes were made of chocolate. Whoops. (laughs) Sorry you totaled your car, but your car's also made of chocolate now. Jesus Christ. Anyway, um, I think I'm there's just, a pretty I'm good reason looking at why articles here. Like, um, apparently, this April Fools, um, Australian McDonald's put something on their Twitter yeah. that was a oh, yeah. McFry burger. Yeah, it was a bur- quarter pounder with fries on it. Yeah, and um, people sort of turned up to, at McDonald's asking for it, mm-hmm. and <laughs> they weren't able to get it, and we're now. Very upset, apparently. Like, Those people not realising that you can literally just lift the lid off of the quarter pounder and <laughs> put your own chips on it? I mean, people have done been doing that John, since McDonald's opened. People don't want to deal with the middleman. They don't want to deal with the transferring of the chip to burger. They want it done for them. They want it to be done <laughs> by a burger artist. A artisan, if you will. Um, but yes, major props to... Do we have any stories about what it was like to record the vocals of the Minions? I don't think so. I think there's it, not that much there about it. I I do think that it probably gets a lot easier when it's the director. Mm. Um, you know, there's just there's no scheduling, no anything really. It would sound like pure insanity. Harley. Like for the yeah. for the Despicable Me movies, it wouldn't be as tough. But that was a bunch of different people for, for those ones. Yeah. For the Minions movie itself, that would have been legitimately hell. I, I cannot fathom what that would have been like. Yeah, there, there is an audio engineer in the world somewhere who got tinnitus because they heard bananas screamed at the top of their, at someone's lungs, and that's all they can hear now. 
just instead of a constant whine, it's just banana. And, and, and the true madness is that it's utterly consistent and yeah. it doesn't flag at all anywhere. It's like the it's like <coughs> the Library of Babel, right? It's legitimate madness. It's like the Library of Babel. Eventually, it'll make sense. It's like a Rosetta Stone for an Eldritch being. Mm. But I, w- I we we can't go past this franchise without touching on the gentle minions, which is, I think, the great... Of all of the memes that you just like so much, the gentle minions is the greatest thing that this franchise has begot. Sure. Like, (laughs) as a concept, all these teenagers going to watch, it was, I think, Minions 2 in suits and cheering raucously whenever the minions came on screen. Mm. I don't like. I understand why cinema work is hated. It. I get why people online weren't too happy with it. Come but, on, you gotta but, find joy in this life somewhere. Like on an existential level, it doesn't matter. It's it's funny. It's just so funny and stupid. Yeah. <clears throat> and and those those kids, like Honestly, some of them, are like legit. Like certain cinemas were not permitting people. They were like. They made a dress code for Christ's yeah, sake. Yeah, it's just casual dress only. <laughs> Alright, I'll take my jacket off. No, like people I came from a very important business meeting as a sixteen year old. Very important business <laughs> meeting. I hired this suit for that business meeting. I and I just decided on John, a whim I'll go to the cinema and watch Minions The Rise uh, of Gru. And what the cinema magic cinema magic cinema managers didn't understand is Got there eventually. You gotta check the bags. You gotta check their backpacks, cause the suits are hidden in the backpacks. If they're gonna a minion-shaped backpack, then you <laughs> pretty much should know. They would just end up wearing the suits anyway. It's just some things are simply so absurd. Legitimately, when you said gentle minions, I forgot about that whole mass hysteria that occurred, and I legitimately thought that it was a picture of the characters from the gentlemen as minions. <laughs> That would actually be pretty funny, though. That scene in the kebab shop, but in minion speak. <laughs> all right, all right. There were there were a few. There were some reasons why cinema owners were getting upset. No, so I, were quite, legitimate. Quite reasons. here from the manager of View Cinema in Worcester. The trend cost me thirteen hundred pounds yesterday. I had to refund all of the tickets in that theater because of kids shouting and mimicking the minions while the film was playing. <laughs> I mean, when we it saw was a Despicable group. Me in cinemas, we had kids in that mimicking the minions, but it wasn't teenagers. Mm. <coughs> See, but then they had, like, dedicated gentle minion screenings. That's nice. I like that. So you've got, yeah, like, the- uh, uh, you've got a whole cinema full of teenagers wearing suits, just enjoying the minions, like a night out at the theatre. Okay, how much of... Minions 2's box office, do you think that the gentle minions are responsible for? Oh, a good amount. I don't know. Like, even if not directly through their own ticket purchases, but through PR publicity. A substantial amount. Like, that's got to be worth at least, like, a $20 million Because what year was this? Last year. Because, really, all it takes... Yeah, because cinema wasn't, like, wasn't fully back at the time Minions 2 came out. If you think about it, all it takes is one crazy French woman to start dancing, and then the entire town goes completely off their nut. Yeah. So, it's like a play. Really, a f- couple people went on friggin' Twitter or whatever, posted videos of them dressed up smart, 
and going to go see what is not a movie, a film in their eyes. This their Citizen Kane. It's cinema. And then a bunch of highly ironic teenagers, which all Gen Zers are, decide this is what we want to do. Oh, I've heard rumblings that something similar is going to happen for Barbie. Wouldn't surprise Wouldn't me. Wouldn't surprise me. I, I have I'm heard surprised that hasn't happened that. for Mario yet. <laughs> Ooh. And that's Illumination 2. That's Illumination 2. So. Yes, the Super Mario film starring Christopher Pratt is and the shaping up to be the best Illumination film. Who'd have thought? Eh, I don't know. If you we'll say see. the boss, baby, I'll hit you next time I see you. <laughs> I have a real soft spot for... This movie for a ming for minions. Do you have a soft spot like, for the boss baby? I've never seen either of the Good, boss babies. And if you force me to watch one, I quit. <laughs> you just make it. Finally, Harley, just the plan. Making him do it. Ah, <laughs> uh, if that's all I knew it would take, Sean, I would have done it a long time ago. <laughs> Gonna make him do it, you fool. Um, what else have they done? Like they've done. Despicable Me seems to have been their first one, yes. Then Hop, that bunny movie. The Lorax, The Secret oh, Life no, of the Pets. The Lorax is actually pretty decent. I am the Lorax, um, I speak for the wood, but they've plastered my likeness on consumer goods. The Secret Life of Pets, Sing, The Grinch, <laughs> the trailers and now for Super that, Mario Brothers. The trailers for that Illumination Grinch movie just... Ugh, I Something about it just felt wrong. They've got a movie coming out later this year called Migration, which is their first original film in a while, mm. since Sing in 2016, actually. And they've also got Secret Life of Pets 3, Sing 3 coming, an untitled Pharrell Williams film, which I suspect I'll be staying away from, <laughs> um, unless you get someone else to do the music. And uh, Big Tree, which is another movie which is... Is it a talking tree that book? says chestnut or some other bullshit? No, it's based on a book that came out earlier this month. Hmm. It follows two tiny sycamore seeds, Louise and Merwin, as they try to save the world while searching for a safe place to grow. Hmm. Yeah, that's becoming more and more apropos. Too late, Louise, Merwin. You fought the good fight, but it's... You tried. It's game over, man. Game over. Uh, I do feel like we've come to... The natural conclusion like, for this episode. We haven't been very heavy on plot discussion here, but to it's be not fair, a very plot heavy film. it's not very plot heavy. I think that this was was pretty much the ideal version of a podcast episode on Minions the movie. Like, I'm not sure what else you really wanted, listener, if not this. But uh, I'm sorry we couldn't give it to you. Um, I I do have some IMDb entries here. We haven't had an entry in the IMDb Parents Guide for a while. It hasn't really um, been but, fitting with the movies we've been watching. No, but for listeners who are not aware, the IMDb Parents Guide is our sometimes segment where we talk about the creepy and or um, the pervy and or prudish entries in the IMDb Parents Guide for the movie we're discussing. Uh, and this week there are several in the sex and nudity section. Of course. Three minions dress up like a woman. One of the minions keeps groping his breasts, which appear to be the goggles of the minion, which is carrying the upper one. <laughs> True. Three male guards rip off clothes and start smacking each other's rears while dancing. Mm -hmm. The film poster literally shows the minion's rear ends. 
It yep. does. That it is does. true. Absolutely. 100% a fact. And it will stay with me, much like Modoc's backside. <laughs> to the day he dies. And of course, someone just being a total smart aleck in the profanity section. Halfway through the movie, Kevin says, it's minioning time, and minions all over everyone. <laughs> That's good. That's good. I like that. Okay, like, here's the thing. The minions do have a curse word. Um, so technically, they do, at times, swear. Um, I just gotta find it. Blue mock is a... Blue mock can be understood contextually, uh, possibly as a minionese derogatory word. Uh, similar to... Uh, English swearing, several times used by Kevin. Uh, this can be supported by the fact that a Minion's lunchbox was released saying, I don't give a blue mock. <laughs> oh, that's in poor taste. Mm. Jesus. Yeah. I mean, blue mock. Yeah. We have to censor that? It's plenty censored already, as it is in Minionese. Right. Um, so, yeah. So, God, you'd hope that they did their research on blue mock. And didn't accidentally. I'm pretty sure that that I'm pretty sure that's a constructed word. All words are constructed. Oh, get off it! (laughs) All right, Uh, we've reached the end of our conversation here. So why don't we each go around and say who our MVP for this movie is, what our favorite scene or sequence is, and of course who we would recast with this podcast's patron saint character actor John Lisko. Knock, knock, who's there? <laughs> I will start us off and I will say that my MVP here has to be Pierre Coffin, uh, the d- co-director and the voice of all of the Minions. Um, it's just a lot of work to undertake, not only directing a movie, but voicing all of those characters in it as well. And, and i got to admit, I get a real a real laugh out of these Minions. Like, I, I get a real real giggle out of some of it and a lot of the stuff that I like the most wouldn't work if it were not for the the really solid way that Clofan delivers those lines. Um the King Bob section specifically. I I just get a chuckle out of that every time. Which is my favourite scene or sequence of the movie. It is King, King Bob. Bob addressing his subjects outside of Buckingham Palace and uh I just I, I it's the the biggest laugh, it's maybe not the biggest laugh I get out of the movie, but it is my favourite part of it. My biggest laugh's probably the we were all born with flippers line at <laughs> a villain con. I get a big chuckle out of that. But I, I, what I like about um, the <laughs> the King Bob bit is how sort of insular it is, how sort of it, it, it reveals the disconnect between the minions and the people around them. And actually, I, I like that they play it as being like a properly effective speech to the other minions. Mm. Like, that's what really makes it for me. But then also at the end that Bob realises that it's not um, it's not worked because they can't understand him. And so he just yells, King Bob, mm. and drops the microphone and everyone starts cheering. I mean, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. Um, so I'm going to go with that. And uh, they really aren't, many places for our podcast mm. patron saint character actor john lithgow here and so i've got to go with uh the narrator for that opening stretch of the movie i think it makes the most sense i think he has the sort of storybook mm. narrator voice that could could do well there uh i think he has a sort of like warmth and a sort of like you know energy that would do do good things in in being what that movie what that part is which is sort of being in in a lot of ways a storybook narrator for children, I think mm. that would work. He's got a and quirky, honestly, quirky vibe that works for it. Yeah, 
and I quite honestly can't think of any other place to put him um, that would really work that well. Pickings so, are just slim on the ground, honestly. Indeed. Unless we want to just make one of the... I do kind of like the idea of one of the minions, just one being voiced by him without comment. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> yeah. But uh, I will go with a serious answer and say the narrator. Uh, for me, uh, Pierre Coffin, uh, as the voice of the minions, what a truly maddening experience it must have been to record the audio for that. And for it to all stay consistent, how do you do it? You're speaking nonsense. How does it even... How do you do that? Tell me. I don't understand. As human beings, we seek out patterns and language. We seek to understand. But I don't... I don't understand how this one guy could do that. If it were several people, I'd understand you share the madness and share the load. But one guy is all the minions. <clears throat> and and he had to do it in that... Oh, it's obviously, like, pitch-shifted a bit, but frankly, irritating voice. I just... He managed to do something that I don't think I could possibly ever do. And I gotta give him credit. I gotta respect it. My favorite scene or sequence. I mean, I guess when they're trying to take the crown jewels, um, where they're using all the little gadgets and the subsequent chase, up to and including uh, Bob pulling the sword from the stone and being crowned king. It The first time I watched the movie, it just surprised me. I didn't see it coming. In, in no world would I have ever seen it coming. And I guess that's what humour is. <laughs> being caught unawares. <laughs> <laughs> Worked on him. <laughs> All right. Um, and uh, for John Lithgow, really, it is just the narrator. Um, he's got a warm storybook tone to his voice. I've heard him because uh, he recorded. I think he recorded some videos during the pandemic uh, that you could put on for your kids. You know, to as like a story time thing. Uh, a lot of celebrities did that at that point. And he's also recorded his own, you know, little kids books and stuff. And audiobook. Yeah. So he just have, has a very good presentation of something like that. And it's kind of like a kind of choice he would make. It's quirky and a little bit fun. He'd have to like spend what? Less than an hour in the booth? Just knock it out, get the paycheck and go? You know? And it's really the only choice when you get down to it. The other choice is what? Herb? No yeah, one needs to probably. do that. <laughs> Peter Coffin. Pierre Coffin. Pierre Coffin. The scene that Holly mentioned, and yeah, John Lithgow could only play uh, the narrator. I'm in pain. I am tired. Let's finish this. <laughs> uh, I emphasize things too much, and now I'm hurting. I, for one, am having a great time. I'm <laughs> also not sitting on a comfortable chair for sitting almost two hours on screen. So. so. Now we are going to put it to a vote. Whether or not we are a pro-Minions podcast or not. Lawson, cast your vote first. The answer's no. Look, <laughs> yeah, it's logically, just, yes. It's just, it's not at that level. It just isn't. I mean, I get, I have a lot of fun with it. I don't have nearly the vitriolic hatred for its title characters that you two, more Jean than Harley, but you two both have a significant dislike for them, it seems. 
I don't share that, mainly because I stay away from social media as often as possible. Um, it's good for my blood pressure, but uh, it the movie just isn't a high enough quality thing to do that. I like the minions, I like the gags, the more absurd and wacky the better, but the bones that the plot hangs on are just not uh, are not configured right. It, it's It's not solid enough, so no, I've got to say no. Do minions have bones? Yes, they do. Or they have been like jellyfish. No, no, there have been X-rays in the movies. They have a skeletal structure. Um, that makes the torture scene make no sense. Although, no, no, unless no. the bones stretch as well. Yeah, I imagine it does. Oh, for God's sake! Well, they're invincible. Do you think they could get broken bones and shit? It just raises more questions. Okay, so for me, it's gonna have to be a no. Um, I think it's amusing enough. And to be fair, three men in the late twenties. This isn't their scene. This is for kids. And apparently teenagers who can hire suits. Um, yeah, it's just not for me. The The plot is barely there. And while I appreciate Sandra Bullock, John Hamm, and Michael Keaton, they don't need I to be- I forgot that Michael Keaton was actually in this. They don't need- it up. They don't need to be here. I don't- This is a short film turned feature length, and I, I, I struggle with it. I, I can never get- on the same page as the minion, yeah. you know? Like, they have archetypal characters, and I get that, but I don't know, I'm kept at a distance. I'm not pro this movie either. I'm not explicitly anti. It does have some quite funny moments, but the plot is incredibly thin. The human characters aren't well written. I think Scarlet has a kind of interesting backstory in the sense that that's the backstory for practically any villain. Yeah. Um, I like the needle drops, but more needed to happen. This movie breezes past. Oh and yeah, it shouldn't it, feel it. It was like what hour forty five that felt like almost nothing. It's empty calories. It raises more questions <laughs> than it answers. And for a movie that reports itself to be the origin story, it spends significantly little time on the origin. Can you imagine if the whole film was going through sort of an episodic thing of those particular bosses that they worked for? The Dinosaur, Dracula, French Revolution. I mean, I kind of would have liked that more if they had to go through month shit like Thermidor. But yeah, there you have it. We are not a pro-minions podcast. I love that you mentioned the month shit like Thermidor as if anyone but you and I in this discussion knows what that means. He was No, a- you don't have to go through it. Lawson's aware of the French Revolution. Anywho. Yes, I am aware of the French Revolution. Are you aware so. of Thermidor? I'm aware of the fact that they tried to, well, they tried being the operative word, <laughs> to reset the calendar. It was to, a shit show. Why bother? Yes, did, Why bother? Didn't didn't take. Um, it was Age of Enlightenment. Like, if you would like to reach us, I don't know why you would after this showing. Uh, you can reach us <laughs> you can reach us at each of our blogs. You can find Lawson at Exit Through the Candy Kind of a join it myself and on the bright side. You can also reach us through our Twitter, which is the place which is the best place to give us episode specific feedback and movie recommendations. What do you think about Dominions? What do you think about our theories about Dominions as a sort of ancient aliens thing? Where do you think they were during the years between eighteen twelve and nineteen sixty eight? Did any wander into the convenient. frost? Uh, where would you place the minions in history? Uh, uh, tell us all your opinions on the Twitter. You could also like, comment, rate, and subscribe on your podcast of choice. 
Just keep in mind that on certain podcast apps, it's for individual episodes, and on others, it's episodes. It's the show on the whole. Uh, just specify which episode you're talking about. That we can, way we can actually understand what you mean with your comments. But please do like, rate, comment, and subscribe. I have told you all about the current fate of England. An irradiated wasteland populated with the grotesque Teletubbies. But I've never told you why. As the robot's consciousness began to emerge and take over the world, a terrible plague struck England. The machines were able to quarantine this very quickly, though. Even if England had a robust healthcare system, which they don't, uh, they would still have fa fell fallen to this illness. The afflicted would begin speaking what seemed to be nonsense. Their bodies would distort into a diminutive round egg shape. Sometimes their eyes would fall out of their heads, the skin becoming jaundiced. The afflicted would feel the great urge to consume vast amounts of potassium, manganese, and vitamin C. Doctors put up an admirable, admirable fight. But the moment the king began to show symptoms, it was already too late. There was no protection from this sickness. So, on a cold October morning, the decision was made by the recently formed coalition of machines that England must fall to keep the rest of the world safe. For a brief but fleeting moment, before the radioactive fire fell in the nation that once ruled the waves, England was ruled by a minion. You're a babbling madman, and this podcast episode is a document of madness. <laughs> What do we have prepared for us next week? Well, next week, the good times are going to keep rolling because oh, we are fantastic. talking about Minions, the rise of Groot. No, I'm just fucking with you. Um, <laughs> no, I, I honestly would have been fine with that. Part of me wanted that to be true. But <laughs> another loud, not on the list but a louder part of me wouldn't have been able to stand it. No, we're talking about a movie that I think is going to get a much kinder reception from all of us. It is Inception. Oh, cool. The Christopher... Yeah. The Christopher Nolan uh, science fiction modern classic, I suppose yeah. you'd call it. Uh, if you would like to follow along at home, you can find it available for streaming in Australia on Netflix, Paramount Plus, Foxtel Now, and Stan, as well as for purchase or rental on the Apple, Amazon, YouTube, Telstra, and Fetch stores. However, it is only available in 4K on the Stan, Apple, and Amazon stores. And that has picked up my mood. Uh, so join us next week for when we discuss Inception. Uh, I have been Holly Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been, and will continue, to be John Lewis. Banana! Ah, la bota. Taraki, mato, lina. La mani, poti, la nota. Oum la mani.